We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we are joined for our by uh, former congressman and political analyst Bob Nay for our weekly Friday review of all national and international news. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. I I, I don't I really don't know where to start. So let's start with the Speaker of the House uh, in Washington seems to be wanting to make a deal to move this government ahead in lots of ways. Uh, Maybe you could start there. Right. I mean, the news is on overload, but this is the the biggie in the United States. And so what's happened is that the Senate voted 77-13, Kevin, to send what's called a short-term spending measure, and this is kind of interesting, to President Biden's desk. Now, the House earlier passed the bill on a 320 to 99 vote. Of the 99 votes, 97 Republicans voted no, two Democrats voted no. So overwhelmingly, you had 320 votes. You need 218 votes to pass a bill. So it it had a lot of votes. It needed it because they're bringing this up under special rules. It doesn't go through the Rules Committee, which could sabotage it, even though the Republicans control the House – the last speaker set up a rules committee that is kind of anti-speaker. Let me say it that way. So they needed two-thirds. They got the vote. Now, that part's done. Now, what they've done is they've separated this into two parts, one for March the 8th, because, of course, you know, this Friday the government was expiring. The second part is for March 22. So of 12 total bills that funds the government, they split them in half. So this first series that's going is going to be, for example, agriculture, commerce, energy, water, military construction, the VA, HUD, et cetera. And then they're going to come back and they're going to do six other bills. And those bills, which have to be done by the 22nd, will fund the entire government. Now, what's unusual about this is that normally you see The bills brought up when I was there, for example, bill number one, number two, number three, et cetera. Amendments are flying in and everything else. These bills have been done by the leadership and some of the committee chairs by the House and the Senate, and they haven't gone just through the normal floor voting process. They kind of, I guess, Kevin, we we should say, threw them together. So not everybody knows at this point in time what's exactly in there. Probably... The Democrats will claim credit for stopping the ultra-conservative poison pills that would have been language changes. And Republicans, some of them, will take credit for making some policy changes in these bills. Now, here's the bottom line. Uh, They're going to need to have a bipartisan vote. So the Democrats are going to watch how these bills come out because the Speaker obviously cannot pass these bills alone on Republican votes. So is there yet some drama? Yes. But are they closer than they were in avoiding a shutdown of the government? That's a yes, too. Bob, Bob just to be clear, uh, for for those uh, in Government uh, 101 class here, mm-hmm. which we like to do, this, this is uh, good news in terms of breaking the logjam and getting back to some sort of routine passage of the regular government spending bills, but it does not deal 
with uh, funding for Israel in the war or Ukraine. Is that right? Yes, well put. It, but it gets it's beginning to get back to what was there when I began serving in 1995, which was a budget process where one by one the agency bills came forward. They, and again, they kind of lumped them together, but they're getting somewhere back to a normal situation. So this will be funding of the government. It will take them through September the 30th of this year. But you're right. What's not in here is going to be because it would have really created a lot of drama. But what's not in here is border policy and, of course, Ukraine and Israel at this point in time. Okay. Uh, Let's move, if we could, uh, to one side of Capitol Hill, and that is the announced retirement of Senator Mitch McConnell uh, who from Kentucky who has decided to step down from his position as the uh, Senate minority leader, the leader of the Republicans, with the quote, which I don't think I'll ever forget, uh, something about, you know, I know how to count, I understand the politics, and I understand the mm-hmm. politics of the Republican Party are moving away from me. Yes. I knew months ago that Mitch McConnell, uh, I didn't know from his lips, but I knew Mitch McConnell was not going to probably be running for leader, you know, in November. Uh, I served with Mitch. He was my Senate author of the Help America Vote Act. So I've worked intricately with McConnell. And let me say, he is a person who can count votes, and he's a person who has been around the political system, you know, forever and a day. What I didn't expect was him to announce it now. I thought he would continue on as leader, and then as soon as the elections were done, he he would announce it. But I think probably McConnell at this point in time just doesn't want to go through the next series of months into, you know, uh, a political fight with Trump and some some of the Senate Republicans. So I think he just probably called it quits now. Unfortunately, that will set up immediate um, jockeying for who's going to be head of the of the Senate Republicans in November. You know, they don't wait. Obviously, it's beginning now. In fact, Senator Cornyn of Texas is the most aggressive at this point in time trying to capture McConnell's job. Uh, Bob, this you were there in in the uh, great good old days of Newt Gingrich uh, taking over the House of Representatives uh, with the contract for America. The date is escaping me, but uh, this is a confirmation, is it not, of uh, I mean, this is a big, big story. This is basically the leader of the Republicans realizing that the party has moved way to the right, even to the right of Mitch McConnell, uh, who's a pretty conservative guy. And it just seems to me that this is a story that the history books are going to are going to pay attention to in terms of the future of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you've nailed that headline. This is. Right now, people hear Mitch McConnell is you know, not going to run as leader, but you're correct. As time goes by, this is going to be looked at as a huge, pivotal moment. Just as when I ran in 1994, we had the contract with America. We started in 1995. Gingrich balanced the, the first budgets in a generation in 1998. Uh, but we had six members 
of the Republican side that were afraid that Gingrich was going to, you know, make them campaign harder, I guess you could say, in their districts. They were afraid of losses. And they went to Gingrich and they said, you know, you need to leave. And he could count votes. And he said, fine, you know, I will. And he did. And that was pretty big. I view this one as as larger because this is, you know, the coming basically the pressure from the candidate who's running for president, which is Donald Trump. And now within the Republican Party, you know, Gingrich didn't leave because the party moved in a different direction. He left because some members got afraid of their election, six of them. But this case, McConnell is basically saying, you know, this is a different world, and he's you know, sort of not part of it. So I, you're right. History is going to show this is a very pivotal moment uh, for the Republican Party, and we'll see what happens you know, afterwards for the next four or five years. And Bob, last question, internationally, there is, and I, I don't see a lot of attention being paid to it. There was a, a carnage at a Gaza food and aid site uh, amid Israeli gunfire. Uh, people are uh, denying responsibility. People, uh, 112 people dead, 760 injured. Uh, do you know the latest on this? Well, it's, there's a couple of different versions. I think the the one consistent thing that we can look at is that there are about, you know, 500,000 people in direct famine and up to 2 million some people overall that are starving. And when the trucks came in, uh, the aid trucks, there were teenagers that were jumping on the trucks as soon as they were, you know, coming close to the, you know, the city area for the people. And the bottom line is there, you know, there's not enough food going in there. So when the trucks came in, a panic ensued. Now, the Israelis say they shot at the at the legs of the Palestinians. But what ended up happening was the drivers went into a panic thinking they were going to be killed of the trucks and moved again through the crowds and people were run over. So it was just a carnage and chaotic scene. And there's probably going to be some blame thrown around on both sides. But on one hand, uh, what the Palestinians are going to argue is, you know, uh, there's complete lack of of the ability to feed people. And, of course, you know, when these trucks come in, there's going to be a, a siege on them. So, you know, the United States, the Biden administration has actually talked about airdropping food into into the Gaza Strip. So very unfortunate. The United States is asking for a definition on this. The Biden administration is asking Israel to uh, define, you know, what exactly happened. Of course, you're going to hear that from the world community also. Okay. Well, we'll continue to follow all of these stories. Wow. Talk about a news overload. Bob Ney, as always, uh, thanks for coming in on this Friday. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We are back, and we're about to take on one of the more uh, sensitive issues in all of Vermont public policy, and it's not homelessness, it's hunting and trapping. And in this week's seven days, our next guest, Kevin McCallum, has a great story about 
the legislature about to make changes or at least moving down the road to making changes to uh, one of the more revered hunting and trapping institutions in Vermont, the Fish and Wildlife Board. Kevin McCollum, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Kevin. Well, boy, you uh, you got in the middle of a, of a doozy of an argument. Uh, tell us what the, the proposed legislation would do. Well, there's a bill right now that's moving very quickly through some Senate committees uh, that hunters and trappers are very worried about, and it would re- essentially remake and reform the Fish and Wildlife Board. And you're right, that is a revered institution in Vermont been around since the late 60s. It's got 14 members on it, all appointed by the governor, and they're the ones who set the rules for hunting, fishing, and trapping in the state of Vermont. They decide everything from bag limits to the type of uh, you know, uh, weapons that animals can be taken with, to seasons, to just a whole host of things, and they have a lot of influence. Um, it's a volunteer board. Um, uh, but the wildlife advocates um, or activists, depending on what you want to call them, uh, have been pushing this board to do things differently for years, and they haven't gotten very far. And so they're getting very frustrated and arguing that this board essentially only really represents the interests of hunters and trappers and fisher people in the state of Vermont. And it doesn't really represent the interests of people who want to save those animals, protect those animals, uh, per, you know, keep those animals from being taken in, in what could be termed sometimes cruel, cruel manners. Um, so there's, the bill would uh, essentially change the way folks are appointed to that board, take it out of the governor's hands for doing that, um, and, and put it partly in the hands of the legislature. So uh, folks in the House, uh, the, the Speaker of the House would get five members, and the Senate would get five members, and then the administration could get five members. And the thinking is, well, you could probably get some people on there that are a little more, um, a little more sensitive to the uh, to the plight of, of of game animals in the state of Vermont. Uh, Kevin, I, I noticed that the chair of the Senate committee considering this bill, uh, Chris Bray from Madison County, seems to support it, as does. Uh, another member of the committee, my former senator, uh, Senator Mark McDonald of Orange County. Those are those are rural guys supporting a bill that would change uh, a longtime cultural institution. Is this thing going to pass? Well, it's definitely uh, passed out of uh, Bray's committee. Um, it's probably um, going to pass the Senate. When it gets to the House, um, you know, we'll see. Uh, the House can be a little more sensitive to intense pushback from large groups of people coming into the building and demanding they not do something. Not always, but sometimes. Um, and, you know, the thing about uh, Bray and McDonald, you have to remember, is while they are uh, lawmakers, senators from rural areas, they are also members of a uh, a board that uh, sets rules. Um, it's called LCAR. And it, that board is uh, the organization that's sort of there to make sure that the laws, uh, once they get passed, actually get turned into rules and regulations in the state of Vermont that they wanted, that are appropriate. And they have just taken issue with some of the rulings of the Fish and Wildlife Board. Uh, they feel as though they told them to do uh, some things uh, to make some changes in specifically in leg uh, the use of leg hold traps and in the use of dogs to to hunt coyotes 
uh, and that they did that a couple of years ago, and that the re- end result was not much change, not much actual restriction on those um, on those practices. And so, yeah, McDonald was pretty blunt in his assessment that the board's just not doing its job. The, the, I want to be clear that the current bill w- would change the makeup of the board, which is now appointed by the governor to six-year terms, but it would also ban hunting coyotes. Uh, with dogs uh, and prevent the use of any foothold trap or body gripping trap, not only within 50 feet of any trail, but from other areas where persons may, quote, reasonably be expected to recreate. So I'm we're thinking about hikers and, and bikers there, right? Right. And that gets back to the, the regulations that um, McDonald and Bray and others thought they were ordering up when they when they passed a couple of laws a couple of years ago to to regulate uh, the, the trapping and the coyote hunting uh, with dogs activities, and so yeah, they are frustrated that those laws didn't result in rules that um, that were strict enough, and so they've gone ahead in the bill to reform the board and made the changes that they that they thought were more appropriate and more in line with the bill, the, the, the bills that they passed a couple of years ago. So, yeah, they, they, um, they just, I think they're frustrated and I think they're kind of putting on a marker here and saying, Hey, look, if this board doesn't work, you know, and they're not passing rules and regs that are appropriate, we're, we're going to do it in a bill and it's going to ban coyote hunting with dogs. And it's going to make, you know, trappers stay 50 feet off of pretty much anywhere <laughs> that anyone might be expected to walk uh, in the woods in Vermont, and that would be a huge that would be a huge blow to people who who, who trap in particular. Uh, Kevin, this is a huge cultural issue, as I've said before on the show. Uh, uh, the the animal uh, welfare people, the, the, the mountain bikers, etc., uh, and then uh, the the I'm going to call them the old school hunters. And trappers, uh, I see former Senator uh, John Rogers even uh, talked about this bill being founded in bigotry, classism, and discrimination. Uh, boy, there's a lot to pick apart in that statement uh, yeah. on both yeah. sides. You've got history, you've got culture, you've got politics. Uh, can you yeah. pick it apart for us? I'll try. Uh, John Rogers is always great for an insightful and inflammatory quote or two, right? And so he he definitely feels as though the uh, traditional way of life in Vermont is under threat <laughs> and that this is just the latest, greatest example of people from other parts of the world who are privileged and w- better off financially and otherwise, perhaps, than than low-income and middle-income blue-collar Vermonters coming here and telling folks who've been here for generations how they ought to be living their lives. And um, that's why this story is so potent, right? On one level, it looks like just a small uh, revamp of a small board that only regulates a small slice of Vermont uh, rules, but it really does tap into this um, this conflict, this this um, essentially a culture war that has been you know playing out in Vermont for decades, but very intensely in the last decade uh, over some of these animal rights issues. Yes, and as a and as the legislature gets younger uh, and more progressive, uh, 
Uh, I mean, I'm, I might be stereotyping here, but as the legislature gets younger and more, more progressive uh, politically, this discussion is going to continue. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, obviously, we have a, a Democratic supermajority here now um, that can do what it largely likes. I mean, it's not always easy to get everybody on the same page, but uh, it's going to be very interesting to see if that um, that Democratic uh, strength is something that they want to bring to bear on changing these these rules and be, knowing full well that they're going to anger uh, large large swaths of rural Vermont and be and and be essentially cast as urban elites, right? Who don't care about it. and that's you know there's there's a lot of very uh, you know rural uh, people Democrats in this in in that building. There's most of the people who are Democrats in that building are from rural areas and care very much about the rural communities and the health of the rural economy and all that. So. But they know that if they pass this bill, they could very well be branded as, as urban elites, and that's just not a good look. And lastly, uh, Kevin, Governor Scott said, uh, opposes this bill. Do you think he'll veto it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. If it's if if it's as crafted currently, I think he would. Which leaves the question of can these guys get the uh, get the firepower to override such a veto? And um, that remains to be seen. Okay. Kevin McCallum of Seven Days. You can read his great story in at sevendaysvt.com. You can get it on the newsstand. Um, Kevin, great story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. There, there is no issue that I guess other than you know banning dairy farming that uh, that gets people riled up more than hunting and trapping. Uh, Animal welfare uh, activists have been trying for years to ban trapping in this state. Uh, they call it uh, cruel. And, uh, and Kevin McCollum's story uh, has a great example of a young woman on her mountain bike uh, with her dog going through the woods. And suddenly they were being chased by uh, hunting dogs. And uh, it was a fearful uh, situation. Uh, the truth is, you know, 50 years ago in this state, that mountain biker didn't exist. And what we're talking about here is a resource, uh, the land, and the, the, the wildlife, that is uh, people are demanding to that it be shared and protected. And our institutions uh, are going to change to keep up with that debate. We'll see what happens and we'll see if the House passes it. We'll see if the governor uh, signs the bill or vetoes it. But uh it's pretty clear that change is coming, whether we like it or not, to this kind of uh, to this to the hunting and trapping uh, 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 community in Vermont that was once off limit uh, to politics. But to see people like Mark Mc, Senator McDonald and Senator Bray openly on the record uh, expressing support for this kind of bill to change the Wildlife Board, uh, that's a that's a big that's a seismic shift in the politics of. We'll follow the story. When we come back, the movies, the Oscars are coming up. And we're going to talk about that with our BT Viewpoint film critic, Keenan Ellis. Right after this, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. And I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. 
let's head to California and talk about movies where our uh, Vermont Viewpoint film critic, Keenan Ellis, is in residence. You have seen Oppenheimer and Barbie, but you may not have seen Maestro, The Holdovers, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, we're headed into award season when film critics, the actors and producers, and the so-called Academy itself give out the awards for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Actor and Director, among many others. It's time we get to indulge our enjoyment of this art and get to know the people who make these films and why Keenan Ellis breaks it all down for us. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Okay. Uh, are you buried under the 12 feet of snow that uh, that the that the weather people say is coming just just on a personal note so that is uh in the mountains that's in the sierras i'm i'm in the valley so we're getting lots of rain which we like down here and we're a little worried about our friends up in tahoe okay all right so you're safe uh don't get flooded mm-hmm. yeah uh, i'll do okay all right um American fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, Oppenheimer, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro. I have seen most of them. Uh, Tell us what sticks out for you. Oh, wow. What sticks out? Um, You know, I'd have to say the one movie that really stuck out for me this year is called Anatomy of a Fall. It's a it's a French movie by uh, a director Justine Trier, who is also nominated for best director and is just it's just a fantastic movie. It's about a um, a husband falls out of the top floor of his home and dies in the first scene, and the only other person in the house is his wife, and so she is blamed for his murder. And then a court case ensues on whether or not she murdered him. And it's a courtroom drama uh, set in France, but it's spoken in both German, uh, English, and French. And the translation is very important. And um, and it's, it's, it's just an absolutely fantastic movie. I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's basically an Aaron Sorkin courtroom drama about marriage and it's it's just absolutely fantastic for those of you who don't know who aaron sorkin is he's the writer of west wing uh the uh the the movie about facebook uh to kill a mockingbird on broadway and uh yeah there's nobody better working in hollywood but okay uh what about oppenheimer it's going to sweep everything right yeah, so uh, unfortunately with the Oscars, uh, there's enough award shows leading up to it that there becomes a very clear pattern of winning and losing. And so it's pretty clear who's going to win before uh, the Oscars even happens. And so uh, Oppenheimer is just, just wiping the floor with everybody. Um, it's it's It was kind of anointed... Uh, earlier in the year as Christopher Nolan's important movie. I, I think the Oscars and Hollywood's been kind of clamoring to give Christopher Nolan an award for years. He's kind of the only director uh, who can 
make a billion dollars based on his name alone. And Oppenheimer is the proof of that, which is, you know, it's a it's a three hour long epic of people talking in rooms. You know, it, it's not really, uh, you know, a normal two billion dollar movie. And yet it made that much money. And it's also an, an important feeling movie about an important man. Um, and that is the kind of movie the Oscars likes to award. Um, I didn't connect with it uh, on a level that a lot of people did, but a lot of people really swear by this movie. Um, I, I think any movie that's three hours long needs to earn it, and I don't think Oppenheimer fully does. I think it would have been a better two-hour and 15-minute movie. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's you know there's culture here. I think. Uh, the audience that grew up worried about dying in a nuclear holocaust uh, still goes yeah. to movie theaters, and uh, and I'm 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 at the younger end of that generation, uh, and uh, but we all lived with that fear, and we knew about this guy Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, so I can see how Hollywood would uh, would go there. I I mean Christopher Nolan, he made the three Batman movies. I, no more needs be said, but, um, okay, yeah. let's move. Well, that, well, I that's, just saw... that's, that's kind of part of it because the Batman movies, um, the dark Knight especially made so much money and was so good. And it was not nominated for an Oscar and, uh, that the Oscars expanded their best picture category to 10 pictures from five. So Christopher Nolan, I think 15 years ago actually changed the way the Oscars do business. So they could nominate movies like his. And so really for the past 15 years, they've been waiting to give Christopher Nolan an Oscar because he is, he's kind of a synthesis of popularity and film technique. Um, okay. Killers of the flower moon. Uh, I got to say, I'm ha I got halfway through it and I was so, uh, I shouldn't have been horrified, but, uh, you know, De Niro it's, it's is a horrifying it, movie. <laughs> it was, it's a horrifying movie and it yeah. holds up a mirror. It holds up a mirror to all of us, uh, about our treatment of, uh, native Americans. Uh, De Niro's in the film in a, in a, he is just a dirty, dastardly, the worst, character yeah. and to know this yeah. happened yeah and of course not not to mention dicaprio uh yeah tell us about that film um yeah I, it's three and a half hours long um and i think it earns it to, to to continue that thread of thought um i i i would say stick it out i think it's one of those movies that everyone should watch um and the fact that it's difficult to watch is part of the reason. Um, I it's it is one of those movies that holds up a mirror, and it's you gotta you gotta look into it as long as you can. Um, and but also there is enjoyment to be found in it. Um, some of the performances, especially the lead actress Lily Gladstone, there's a lot of humor and. Uh, joy in that role um, until there isn't. And part of the loss of that joy is part of the 
is part of the hardship of that movie. Um, and it's Martin Scorsese, and it it might be his last great movie. Um, he's he's in his eighties. He's very he's getting old, and he's making he's talking a lot about dying in interviews. So I don't know if, right. if Martin Scorsese has another one of these in him. And so for that alone, it's worth watching. Um, and, but, and we should point out that Lily Gladstone won the, uh, the Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Actress, right? Yeah. So it, it's it's interesting. There's, there's really a two-woman race for Best Actress between her and Emma Stone and Poor Things, which is kind of a Frankenstein – if Frankenstein were a woman monster movie. <laughs> Okay. Oh boy. Do I have to go watch poor things? Um, no, you don't <laughs> <laughs> listen. And to everyone listening, you don't have to go watch any of these. Um, but the Oscars is a good way to advertise and to get smaller movies out there. So to watch something like Past Lives, which is a really beautiful romance uh, that most people have not seen from A24, I would say absolutely, like, absolutely go watch that. I would say go down the list of 10 Best Picture movies, read the two-sentence tagline for each, and then go see uh, whichever one spikes your interest. Um, it's a, it's There's a high bar of quality for all of these movies and um and and just going to watch any good movie is a good thing so you know the oscars may not get it right every year on awarding the best picture or the best actor or actress but they do shine a light on some of these smaller movies that should be seen well, speaking of one of those movies that should be seen, Zone of Interest, I see, is playing yeah. in March at the Savoy <laughs> Theater in Montpelier. Tell us about that. So, I, so you know, you want to talk about a hard movie to watch. I have not seen this movie yet. I'm a little scared of this movie. It is about um, the warden of Auschwitz, uh, and it's about his vacation home a couple miles to the west of Auschwitz. And he's brought his family there, and there's a garden, and they have nice parties. And uh, and while, all while 10 miles away, you know, the worst place that humanity has ever created is just 10 miles away that this man has created while his kids are playing games and having a wonderful childhood. And so that's the pitch of Zone of Interest. And uh, it's, a, by all accounts, it is a heavy movie to watch. I haven't watched it. Uh, I keep trying to convince my girlfriend to go see it with me. And we both kind of look at each other and go, not tonight, not tonight. Um, by all accounts, it is a great work of art. And if you're looking to be challenged, I think it will it'll be worth your while. It's definitely going to be worth my while. I'm definitely going to go. I just haven't worked up the courage yet to watch it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we got two more that I well, I saw the holdovers with uh, Paul Giamatti the other night. It's fantastic. Go see it. American Fiction uh, with, with Jeffrey Wright in the lead role 
of about a a, a, a black author who who does not write uh, stereotypical black literature, uh, and and sort of this is a movie about turning the tables and stereotypes and and going against stereotypes. A great performance by him, and uh, God, I, I just thought it was a great film. Yeah. Tell, tell me more. I, this is the one I haven't seen just because I haven't gotten around to it. It looks amazing. Everyone says it's incredible. I, you called me afterward and were just like, this is the movie of the year. So, yeah, well, what, what makes it so great? Well, what makes it great is that he is great. And he, of course, has not been a lead actor in lots of movies. He played He plays the CIA guy, Felix Leiter, in the James Bond films. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just uh, he, he, he's he's a college professor and writer and he's trying to be successful and and he but he he's not successful until uh, he gets falsely recognized stereotyped uh, black writer who's on death row in prison and he gets on uh, audio zoom calls and disguises his voice uh, to be yeah. that that black ghetto uh, voice and, and he hates it. But the, the system uh, that produces books in New York uh, just loves this, this fake story. And of course there's all sorts of great acting going on. Leslie Uggams is uh, in it who I watched as a young kid and the gentleman, uh, Oh, the gentleman who plays, uh, this is us, uh, the husband, uh, he he plays a uh, yeah Sterling uh, K Brown. Yeah, Sterling K Brown is in it, yeah. and he's a gay uh, plastic surgeon in L.A. who's getting divorced for the second time and losing all his money. And so it's a it's a family story about. And the mother, of course, has Alzheimer's, and they're dealing with that. Uh, and it's just a it's a family saga story that forces us to face the way we stereotype each other. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds great. It sounds great. Yeah. We're, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely go see it. Um, but we have to okay. go see Dune in IMAX uh, this weekend first. So okay. we'll, oh we'll get on. I've been hearing about this movie since you were in diapers. <laughs> so can you tell us, okay, tell us about Dune. Okay. So, February is over, and February is kind of, is known as Dumpuary. It's where it's right after the Oscars are nominated, and most people are not going to the movies in February. And so, when studios know they have a bad movie, they put it out in February. And so that's why in February there's mostly only bad movies in movie theaters. That's why Madame Web is in movie theaters right now. And uh, so February is over. And for some reason, March, people go see movies, or that's just what the, the 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 industry believes. And so, you know, right out of the gate, here comes the biggest movie of the year, Dune 2, which is directed by the great French director Denis Villeneuve, and who directed uh, the new Blade Runner and Arrival. Uh, to name just two, and Sicario, which is an incredible movie. Um, And it it just looks like they put all of the resources in the world, every famous 
person is in the movie and it's all put together by a real filmmaker. So if you're looking for blockbuster entertainment made for adults by someone who knows what they're doing, I think Dune 2 is going to be it. Um, But who knows? I haven't seen it yet. It might be terrible. Who knows? (laughs) Okay. Kenan, best picture? Best picture? So are these predictions what I want to win or what I think will win? Because they are two different things. And like what I actually think is the best picture. All right, let's do you. Actual best picture. What do you What do you think? I mean, we can do both real quick. I, it's, Oppenheimer's going to win. I, it's It's pretty clear that Oppenheimer's going to win. Um, my favorite movie of the year is A Boy Called the Boy and the Heron, which is the Miyazaki new film um, that just rocked me. But I, Oppenheimer is definitely going to win the the best picture Oscar. And director, who do you want? Who is the best director in your mind, and who's going to win? Uh, I would give it to Justine Trier for Anatomy of a Fall. I, I think that movie. I think she does just an incredible job with that film. There's a there is a scene where that where the husband and wife fight each other, uh, have a verbal uh, fight, and it's just one of the more exciting moments in movies that I saw this year, I I would give it to her, but I do think it's going to go to Christopher Nolan. I think there's going to, there's going to be a certain amount of, (laughs) uh, there's going to be a pattern here. Okay. Uh, okay. And best actor and best act, male actor, best female actor. Oh man. Um, I think I would give, female actor to Lily Gladstone. I think she's pretty incredible. Um, and I think she might win as well, though it could be Emma Stone. Um, and then for male actor, I go Paul Giamatti for the holdovers. Uh, I thought he was just really fantastic and funny, but I, again, I do think Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer is going to win. Okay. Well, uh, for my part, uh, Killian Murphy is the most, uh, 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 let's see, arresting and powerful yeah. actor in, in in movies today. I'm, I'm not sure if it's the eyes or the hair or the or the whatever, but boy, I'll tell you. And I love yeah. how when he got it, when he's interviewed about uh, by unsuspecting reporters who don't know better, uh, when they asked him, uh, they asked him where he's from, and they they assumed he was from England, and he. he he of course said, "No, I'm from Ireland," and making <laughs> yeah. for uncomfortable, uncomfortable, uh, clueless journalists uh, from around the globe. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> I've seen that clip. It's very funny. I I read that when he was living in London for work, and then when his kids started having English accents, he moved back to Ireland, which is just it's just uh, very funny. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, and of course he's the bad guy in Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Uh, he's in uh, uh, Dunkirk. Also, D- Nolan made Dunkirk, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Which is, I yeah. I think his best movie. I that's it's just an incredible film. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wait, did we get to best? Oh, we did. Killian Murphy and yeah. Okay. Well, uh, where are you going to be on Oscar night? In front of the TV. 
So, I mean, this is the thing. In my generation, we don't have TV. You know, we don't have cable. So it's actually really hard to watch the Oscars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, it's not going to be on streaming. And so for us cord cutters, the Oscars have left us in the lurch, and which I always find kind of funny because they're always complaining about how nobody watches. So I'm, I'm like, if you put it up on Netflix, we'll watch. Um, but... So I, I think if we're going to try to watch it, we'll probably go over to my girlfriend's parents' house and uh, and check it out. Um, so, well, you know, it'll, it'll be fun. It's a good conversation starter, and people can get pretty pretty heated about these movies. So, Okay. Well, American fiction should win Best Picture, but it won't. Keenan Ellis? No, no. Uh, Oppenheimer. As always, Keenan Ellis, thank you. Uh, catch his, catch Keenan's uh, uh, fantastic uh, fictional podcast called The Phone Booth. You can get it on Apple Podcasts or uh, or Spotify. Uh, as always, thanks for joining us to talk about movies. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Hey, that's our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Keenan Ellis, Lisa Scalotti, Kevin McCallum, and Brenda Siegel. Be sure to follow all of them online. Read them, patronize their work. Uh, they're interesting and provocative people doing really interesting things. You've noticed I've been missing in action on Wednesdays. I've, I've stepped back. Uh, I'm pursuing a sort of an independent journalism project that requires some more time. Uh, but I'll definitely see you. Uh, every Friday from here on in, I'll, I'll see you next Friday for we'll do a recap of town meeting and and uh, and other issues, all the issues that came up at town meeting. Of course, hit me up on Twitter. Email me at VTViewpoint at RadioVermont.com. I read them all and I will respond. Our goal is to illuminate and inform. Remember, you can stream the show live later as a podcast. Uh, WDEVRadio.com anytime, anywhere. Our show is produced by me, engineered, made possible today by Lee Cattell and Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us here on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.